Well, this morning as we uh, transition into another message series, uh, and this will be the one that will lead us up to Advent, and I thought it might be appropriate just to go through a, a New Testament book that I haven't really gone through in a long time, and uh, it's the book of Galatians. I don't know if you've ever read that book or not, but it's one of the writings of the Apostle Paul, and the thing I like about it so much is how it uh, indicates uh, the transforming process that takes place in the life of every believer. And if you look at the graphic on the screen, um, you see that in the palm of the hand of this individual is something that looks, well, what do you think that is? It's a moth? It's a bee? Let's go ahead and show the non-transformed slide that, uh, that, that depicts it. Anybody ever see one of these in the summer? You know what it is? It's a moth for sure. Uh, it's not just any kind of moth though. It is a hummingbird moth. Have you guys ever seen a hummingbird moth? It, I, you know, I honestly did not know that these things even existed until, uh, until this year. And I was um, on my deck and I was looking at all the plants that my, my son has planted and my wife has been uh, reluctantly called to help maintain while he's been out gallivanting. And as I'm looking at some of these uh, uh, beautiful uh, specimens that, that, that we have uh, all around us, I see this thing uh, hovering and, and darting from, from uh, plant to plant, uh, doing what would otherwise be the behavior of a hummingbird. The only thing was, it was as miniature as hummingbirds are, this is a miniature uh, of a hummingbird, yet it's a moth. And I was just amazed by uh, what it looked like and what it did in mimicking uh, the behavior of uh, of a hummingbird, because essentially uh, what a hummingbird does is what it does. Now, how how is that? You know that that nature and and, and God and the way that He's created beauty in all of its vast array. How is it that um, He created two different kinds of creatures, an an insect and um, and a bird that essentially look alike and do the same thing. Uh, but are from uh, two different um, you know, types of, uh, of species. And it really is amazing. And, I, and as I think about that, I think you know, that, that is just part of the, the, the wonder of God's glory. Then there are some things that I feel like are aberrations. And I was driving by uh, some of these Halloween blow-ups that people have in their yards uh, up around North Lima. And I, I was just kind of looking at all of them and I, I, I saw one that, that kind of made me shudder. And it was a blow-up of a praying mantis. And if you know me, you know that there's probably one thing that I don't care a lot for on this planet, and it's them. I won't go into my issues with them, but snakes don't bother me, spiders don't bother me. I'm not even sure scorpions really bother me that much, but praying mantis, that's another thing. And there is something wrong about their existence here on Earth. As much as they do eat a lot of insects, they do other things that just aren't right. Did you know that praying mantis actually eat hummingbirds? Were you aware of that? All you got to do is YouTube it. 
and you'll see a hummingbird feeder, you'll see a praying mantis, and you'll see that innocent little hummingbird going up to that feeder and dipping its beak into uh, that, that pool of um, sugary goodness, and then bam, praying mantis got him. And I'm like, that is not right. An insect, first of all, first of all, should an insect eat a mammal? I mean, that's just not right, is it? That's as bad as a plant eating insects. You know, like um, a Venus flytrap. There's just something out of sequence with the natural order of things when you see that happening. But for whatever reason, those things do occur in nature. And in our lives, uh, we are born into a way of life that uh, in some ways is, a, is an aberration of what we were truly called to be. And the best way I can describe it is that as we are created in God's image and we are called to live in relationship and fellowship with him, something happens whenever we find ourselves disconnected uh, from, uh, from, from the presence of God. And essentially, that's a big reason why we spent about five weeks talking about the gospel and the good news. That there are so many of us on the planet who are unaware that we are even disconnected, unaware that our way of life apart from God is, is not normal or not natural or, or, or you could say just not right. But at the same time, there are so many of us who sense, even though we don't have the language to describe, who sense that things aren't what they should be. And the Bible talks about that in such a powerful way as the whole storyline of what the Bible leads up to in the person of Jesus and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, that it is the Bible's way of showing how God worked through time and people and events and circumstances to lead us into, well, actually to lead us back to the place where we were intended to be to start with. And that process is something that the Bible calls transformation. We essentially have to undo so many of the things that we've uh, developed in our own lives as habits and attitudes and ways of looking at the world and then redo them in a way that helps us to see the world clearly. And when the Book of, Book of Galatians was written. It was written by a fellow by the name of Paul who went through his own personal transformation uh, sometime prior to writing this, maybe even about 10 or 15 years prior to, to, to writing this book. Uh, something happened in his life that totally redirected uh, his, um, his, his purpose and his trajectory. And the book of Galatians is believed to be the first writing that has been um, assembled into what became our Bible by the Apostle Paul. It's his very first one. And right out of the gate, uh, he starts talking about who he is and where he came from and the change that occurred and the difference that it's beginning to make. And the rest of the book is really telling Christians what it is that goes to make up the landscape of, of, of their world, both mentally and spiritually 
and in many ways physically. So with that introduction, as I think about things that are called to do what God has designed them to do, I want us to realize that if you're disconnected from God or are newly uh, grafted in and adopted into his family, God is in the process of transforming your life. And that transformation doesn't just begin and end in, in a baptistry, but rather it is an ongoing process of taking us out of an old way of living and thinking, repointing our, uh, our, our aim towards Christ, and then beginning to delayer each part of our lives in such a way that on each one of them we're transformed. And that requires a lot of transitions that we have to go through. We have, uh, we've been highlighting grief to some degree. And I think some of us, whenever we start behaving and thinking differently, we sort of grieve about that change. But the other side of grief is a sense of hope that things will become what they're supposed to become eventually. And I want to look at Galatians chapter 1 this morning. And I want to just uh, highlight some verses that are found in verse 13 because we're just going to take these sort of chapter by chapter leading up to Advent. Uh, but in the process, Paul writes these words that I think you might find interesting. He says, you have heard no doubt of my earlier life in Judaism. I was violently persecuting the church of God and was trying to destroy it. Okay, this is a guy who is a preacher who loves people passionately, loves the Lord, but has had such a misguided sense of what his purpose was that he was actually doing the very things that God had said, I, I don't want these things to be happening. I don't want to be violent towards each other. I don't want, in the name of religion, other people uh, persecuting, tormenting, and, and ultimately destroying and that's exactly what Paul was doing because in his mind, in light of everything that he understood about his life and purpose, he felt like this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Have you ever had uh, personal heroes? You know, interestingly enough, I, I didn't realize this until I moved out here, but it, it's just kind of ironic. Whenever I was in second grade and I was watching football, who were the reigning champions in football in 1972? Does anybody, can anybody think of anyone that maybe comes to mind? Dolphins, the Miami Dolphins. And who were, who were a couple of their star players back at that, back in the day? Larry Zonkin, who else? Some other names? Bob Greasy? You guys... Okay, all right. And I just hear him kind of bubbling up here. And I had a poster on my wall. And it was like the first heroes that I could think of whenever I was a kid. Because we would, even as little kids, we'd talk about football. And we uh, bought uh, 
the grocery store occasionally would put on a promotional because this is how small my town was where they would sell football t-shirts and that was a big deal because we didn't have a place where you could go and buy football t-shirts in, in a little town of 3,000 people and I remember getting a Miami Dolphins football t-shirt and I remember talking about Larry Zonka and Bob Greasy and, and, and that, and that all-star team and having the poster on my wall and, and just thinking, you know, those guys are just so awesome. I want to be like them whenever I grow up. Well, Maturity didn't happen in the way that it should have happened, and uh, football never did become something that, uh, that was my calling. Uh, so the heroic status of those people just became unrealistic because I could never become like them. But the Apostle Paul, whenever he, even as a young man, heard the stories and had his own posters on the wall of people that he could uh, depict as certain individuals that you want to you want to pattern your life after there were there were two of them one of them is mentioned in the in the old old parts of the old testament uh and it uh, his name was Phineas who had such a passion for the lord that there was um there were people who were doing what they shouldn't be doing on the steps of the temple and it was flagrant and it was an abomination in the, in the eyes of, 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 of all the people that respected everything good and holy and he drove a spear through them and it was regaled as a heroic moment when righteousness was, uh, was, was vindicated through the um, through the uh, um, through the uh, attack uh, on sin so um, so graphic and I'm not you, you can look it up if you want and you can read it uh, but not now um, you can look it up later and so that actually captured the imagination of people that wanted to be holy and righteous warriors for the cause of all things to do with um, the God of the Hebrews and then there's another person, and his name was Elijah. And Elijah was this almost larger-than-life prophet who, in, in every encounter, he was just in the face of the people that were opposing the things of God. And it was a pretty dark moment, so there were a lot of people that he got in the face of. And in, in, in one turn of events, he got in the face of the, the, the king and the queen, you know, Ahab and Jezebel, who didn't take too kindly to the fact that he was calling them out, and the prophets of Baal, and in every case, he's saying, may the Lord call down fire on you. And just hearing the echo of that in the imagination of Paul's mind uh, was, was just a, a fuel for the zeal that he had for all the things that had to do with God. And so in his mind, as a young um, Jewish boy growing up in a community that actually had an outstanding university, uh, Tarsus, that would equip young men in the knowledge of the things of God and in the, and in, and in the larger realm, the things of the world. And he was so zealous in his scholarship and in his desire to just integrate all of the things of the Lord into his heart that um, he became an outstanding student. 
and he studied in, in, in the university not only all of the traditions and the teachings, but he also studied um, the, the Greek thinkers and, um, and, and, and the ability to use rhetoric to speak in a way that was convincing. And it wasn't because he wanted to just broaden his horizons and, and find truth wherever he could find it. No, he wanted to know the landscape of the, of, of the place and the people and the minds and the thinking of all of the people that he wanted to represent God to and speak their language. He was extremely zealous that the writer Josephus says that there was a, a mentor named Gamaliel who had... A student that was just head and shoulders above everybody else, and he, th- this this kid, he was going to grow up to be something pretty fantastic. Well, a lot of people say that Saul of Tarsus was that kid that grew up to be that very powerful and, in his mind, faithful and zealous representative of the things of God. And so right around the time he came of age, there was, a, there, there, was a, there was a group of people that started to emerge in light of a story that happened about a man named Jesus who was a, a teacher, a powerful teacher, a charismatic leader who seemed to be leading a lot of people astray, leading them away from the traditions that Paul had um, in, in his own mind affirmed as holy and sacred. And this Jesus had created such a following of people who emerged into a group called The Way. And as this group of people began to um, just scatter into the regions beyond Jerusalem, Paul and the religious establishment summed up in their mind what this meant. And they perceived it as a threat. So Paul said, you have heard no doubt of my earlier life in Judaism. I was violently persecuting the church of God and was trying to destroy it. And even to this day, there were still people saying, is Paul a double agent from the other side? Is he sort of infiltrating our ranks so that he can try to undo the whole thing? And as smart as he was, and as capable as he was, and as zealous as he was, it truly was a, a warranted suspicion. So much so that when he was in Jerusalem, in the telling of his biography, he said that most people were dubious that I was a sincere believer in Jesus Christ. And they tried to kill him. They basically said, um, you know, there, on the one hand, there were people who said, he's following the way. And people tried to kill him that way. And on the other, on the other hand, there were people who said, no, he's a double agent. And they resisted in, in, in that way. And it became so tense that they had to lower him out of the city in a basket at night so that he could clandestinely flee. And all of this goes to make up the very intriguing life of a person who was so opposed, so violently opposed to the faith that he could never imagine in a million years that he would come to the place where he would embrace the very thing that he was trying to destroy. 
Now we read in other parts of the scripture about his life. And in, in the book of Acts in chapters 8 and 9, it records a little bit about his story. And in 8, it says, before his conversion, Paul was ravaging the, ch- the church and entered house after house. And he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So you can see the type of fear that he created in the, uh, in the minds of the people that were meeting together for church. And it drove the church underground where they were just meeting in secret places. Because on the one hand, the Jewish people were becoming very, very hostile towards them. And on the other hand, the Roman government was starting to uh, see them as a threat in their own right. And Paul was sort of leading the charge. And in Acts chapter 9, we read after he is converted, the response of people is, and all who heard him were amazed and said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priest? And so a lot of people are sort of like wondering, is he changed? Is he not? And what Paul wanted to say was, There has been a fundamental transition that's happened in my life. I, at one point, had one mind about everything, and now I have a different mind about everything, and I want to try to convince you that that is the case. Well, how do you know somebody? Do you know somebody, honestly, by the words that they say? Or do you more accurately kind of follow their behavior over time And perhaps at first you're skeptical and untrusting. But the more they're consistent with the things that they say that they believe, you begin to say, well, they are embodying the qualities that they're talking about. And for a number of people, it took many, many years before Paul, because of not so much the words, but the fruit You know, Jesus says you'll know them by their fruit. The fruit that started to come out of his life indicated that something had changed. That he was the real deal. That he had realigned his life's purpose with something much greater and more powerful. And I want to stop right there and just kind of make a point of comparison between your life and and, and, and Saul who became Paul's life. Because in reality, it's no different. We may not have been persecutors in our former existence, but we certainly in our own right were as misguided and going in a different direction as he was. And the interesting thing is how as we look at his story, he's trying to tell us, I'm not preaching at you. I'm preaching with you. I'm coming alongside and telling you, I'm just as bad as everybody else. I'm that guy who did despicable things and I'm deeply ashamed of them. I'm that guy that Jesus warned you about whenever he was getting ready to be crucified himself. You know, we read these words in Acts, or or in John rather, 16. And it says, Jesus is getting ready to go and 
it's getting ready to happen with his death, burial, and, 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 and resurrection. He said, I have said these things to keep you from stumbling. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, an hour is coming when those who kill you will think that by doing so they are offering worship to God. And he's anticipating people like Paul and maybe Paul especially. And they will do this because they have not known the Father or me. But I have said these things to you so that when their hour comes you may remember that I told you about them. You see, Jesus is anticipating the very things that Paul was beginning to do to his followers after his ascension and the day of, and Pentecost and the Holy Spirit was given. And when he wrote these words, none of this had transpired. And yet in the minds of the people that were following Jesus, they knew it would come. And it came in the form of one Saul of Tarsus especially. Isn't it amazing though what happens when God breaks into our lives and changes our whole way of looking at things? You see, Saul of Tarsus, it wasn't so much that his desire was wrong or even his intent to serve God was wrong. It was how he was doing it that was so misguided. And I'm guessing there are a lot of people who are, who honestly, if you ask them, they would say, yeah, I do believe in God. And I do want to do the right thing. But the missing component is, 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 a, is, a, is an acceptance of Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord into your life. And then adoption into his family that creates a whole new identity for your life. And that changes everything. You know, I think one of the things that Paul might tell you before he had a very powerful conversion experience on the road to Damascus. When Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul is sort of dumbfounded by the whole experience and only later it all made sense but up to that moment he's thinking I'm a godly person I'm a good person I'm doing the right thing I'm doing it in such a way that no one is doing it as well as I am why would God be interested in changing that and when Jesus shows up why would God even go so far as to say you're persecuting me I think what Paul makes us all aware of is that we can be so misguided in our approach to life that it becomes an actual blind side, that we're not even aware that we're doing it wrong. We've convinced ourselves that we're, we're doing it right. I, I read a story this week about a fellow who, from, from West Virginia who won the lottery back in 2005 that it was in the sum of uh, $30 million. And if you can imagine receiving a notification that your lottery ticket, all five numbers had lined up and you'd receive $30 million. 
And as the story unfolds, it says that he didn't think it was a big deal initially because he thought, I'm going to give money to the church, I'm going to tithe, I'm going to do good things for people, and I'm going to become really a benefactor for you know, friends and family and acquaintances and, and all of the people that are living in the surrounding area of West Virginia. And he started out that way, and as his life unfolded, so did the character qualities inside of him where it became evident to the people around them that initially he's spending money like crazy to impress people that he's able to do good. And when the story went south on me is when he was talking about doing all this church stuff and then the story talks about him going into a strip club and putting $50,000 on the bar and saying, you know, I want to pay for everything here. And then I'm thinking, wow, his wealth and his security and his identity have really skewed his judgment. And it just gets from bad to worse in terms of how the story uh, <laughs> begins to circle the drain. That's the only way I can describe it. You see, he had a, a granddaughter that he helped to raise and she went from being a pretty loving and caring person to receiving a daily stipend from him of of a thousand dollars and all of a sudden friends who weren't friends before showed up things uh, became ugly when he would go into different venues and he would say you know I've got all this money I can do whatever I want I can tell people to do whatever I want I can solicit from people however I want and it just became monstrous and demonic to the point where after three years his granddaughter um, was um, identified by the coroner as one who died from a drug overdose and other collateral damage happened in the lives of the people that were otherwise good people that got caught in the in the in the undertow of of all of this money and 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 power that came out of it and the reason I'm going in that direction is because when he, at the end of the story, was asked, what do you think the cause of all of these problems was? And he said, it was money and other people. And I'm, and I'm saying to myself, and, and, and... And your own character flaws that made decisions that put into motion a whole set of consequences that impacted everyone in an unbelievably bad way. But he never would admit that the responsibility for all of this chaos that occurred as a result of scratching off this lottery ticket had anything to do with himself. And the Apostle Paul, I think, believed in his own misguided way that everything that he was doing was above board until the Lord broke into his world and just rocked his world completely. And I think the Lord has to do that to many of us to wake us up to the fact that we're not seeing what we need to see. And how does that happen? Sometimes it happens by experiencing a loss 
where we are so broken by the change that that has affected in our lives that our head's spinning and we're just in the state of perpetual confusion about why this happened the way it did. Some of us have circumstances that are so powerful and so overwhelming that we feel like there is no other place to go but God. And religious or theologians have said there are different kinds of brokennesses that God uses to break that spell of the blind side that we have so that we can see him. And for the Apostle Paul, it says in the three times that his conversion experience is mentioned in the book of Acts, that he had scales over his eyes. And after three days, his scales fell off and he could see. And it was a physical depiction of what actually was happening internally. And for all of us, sometimes we just have that blind side where we don't see it, we don't see it, we don't see it. Until the Lord breaks in and he changes us. And hopefully for the better. Now when Jesus was telling his disciples, it's coming and it's going to be ugly. And Paul was the initiator of the pain that would be inflicted on the church. No one ever imagined in their wildest dreams that the one who can work everything together for good for those who loves him. And I believe the Apostle Paul loved God. He just didn't know how, to, how the relationship worked. God works things together for good. Romans 8.28 And God is working in Jesus' life, in the disciples' life, in Paul's life. And interestingly enough, can you imagine, when you hear this information and you're thinking, those people will never understand who Jesus is as they track us down, as they haunt us, as they try to kill us. They never imagined that the very people that were persecuting them, some of them would actually come alongside them. You just never know with God. It's, it's, it's unpredictable. Well, let me just finish out the text and then we'll, we'll conclude. In, in, the, in, the rest, in the rest of these verses in Galatians, uh, we find this. We find that Paul said, I advanced in Judaism beyond many among my people of the same age, for I was more, far more zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. And then he goes on to say, but when God who had set me apart before I was born and called me through grace was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might proclaim him among the Gentiles. I did not confer with any human being, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were already apostles before me. But I went away at once into Arabia and afterwards I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I did go up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that is Peter, and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard it said, the one who formerly was persecuting us is now proclaiming the faith that he once tried to destroy. Never in a million years did they think that could happen. 
And maybe people in your world said, never in a million years did I think I would see you in church. But God is, he's up to something very powerful. And his aim is to go through each of our own life story and work through, work with the material that is there through people that are faithful to his purposes to ensure that we come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So what that does is that puts a burden on two different kinds of people. One is the people that are like any of us in the room and myself especially included living with a great big blind side and God is in his infinite wisdom trying to figure out how it is that he can get through to you. Sometimes a word to the wise is sufficient. Sometimes the brokenness of your experience is what helps you to just kind of get your bearings once again. To see clearly once again. And maybe God is giving you a wise word and he's calling you into a wonderful family. Maybe God is allowing you to go through an experience of difficulty so that you will come close. And the best way to come close to the Lord is by reading his word, is by being around other believers, and is, and is by asking God to reveal himself to you. You see, the Apostle Paul, when I opened this up, said, I am here because God revealed himself to me. And the way that God does that is not consistent from person to person, but rather he just speaks to us in ways that relate to our world that we can understand. And for preachers like myself, my job is to just lay it out there before you, Trust that God is working in your heart before you even come into this room. Because like Paul, I believe we're, we've been called from the beginning of the world to be in relationship with God. And then as God is working through your life, you may be at that place on the timeline where you hear the preacher say the word and at that place, that's when God said, everything that I've been working on in the background of your life up until this moment leads to us coming together in relationship and you being rescued from the darkness that kept you captive and together being incorporated into his family. Now, I don't know if God's working in your life in that way, but if he is, I, I would just say he's going to keep working until uh, until he sees that that that. that 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 glimmer of hope that you can connect with him through Jesus. And on the other side of it, there are people like Peter who are dubious about the possibility of Paul of all people becoming a believer. And there are people in your life and mine, we're like, we can't tell them about Jesus or we can't encourage them in their brokenness because they just they will never come around. And I want you to know something. You probably have those people in your life. And I want you to pray for those people. Because when you do, and you ask God for an opportunity 
to say something about Jesus to them. He'll create that opportunity. And you'll be surprised how your dubiousness about their ability to respond is changed by the surprising response that they may give you. That, yeah, you know what? I am interested. And so with us, things are impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Many people like Paul since then have aligned their story with God's story. My question for you is have you aligned your story with that same story as well? Let me pray. Father, thank you for giving us the gift of your word and the gift of testimony that gives us a sense of, of, of me too in the very biblical sense of what that means. Where each of us, Father, knows the misguided life that has been lived apart from you giving us our bearings. And many of us, Father, know when we direct our lives toward you, how you do work everything together for good on a daily basis, how you are trustworthy, how you care, and how at subtle levels and sometimes dramatic levels, your hand is seen at work. Lord, just be at work in the lives of everyone here and the people that will be engaging with this message in such a way that you woo them into your presence, that you bring them closer, and that they may know the joy that you have anticipated giving them. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.